have your Bibles, I would invite you to open them to John chapter 15. We're going to spend some time there this morning in that text. <coughs> How many of you have heard of a man by the name of Hudson Taylor? Is that, okay, a bunch of people here have, have heard about this man. Uh, really an amazing young man, born in 1832, so this is a long time ago. About when he was about 17 years old, some of you are about that age. Uh, his testimony was that through the prayers of his mother, he came to know Christ. And he had a passion for China. And he, uh, at, age, at age 21, he had no formal training in missions, nothing. And he sailed to China, began to learn the language. And there he held about 10 evangelistic crusades and just really developed a heart for, for that area. It was there that he began to develop some convictions, and at one point he was, he was back in the United States. This was June 25th on a Sunday, 1865, and I write from his biographer, unable to bear the sight of a congregation of a thousand or more Christian people rejoicing in their own security, while millions were perishing for lack of knowledge. I wandered out on the sands alone in great spiritual agony, and there the Lord conquered my unbelief, and I surrendered myself to God for this service. It was at that moment that he decided to commit his life to the country of China, and the birthplace of the China Inland Mission took place. Uh, he was only 33 years old at the time, and he had this conviction that kind of based on the life of George Mueller, uh, that the missionaries were not to, uh, they were not to appeal for funds. They, they were to just trust the Lord and to go out and allow him to provide. And that's what he and, and 16 other missionaries did uh, as they sailed out and, and began what was often a very difficult work. There's a lot that we could talk about uh, in the life of this man he had some very difficult seasons of his life. 1870, his son Samuel died in January, one of his children. Then in July, Maria, his wife, gave birth, it says, to a second son, Noel, who died two weeks later. And on July 23rd, his wife died of cholera. 33 years old. She was. He was 38. So here he is with these four children. And at one point in his ministry, and there's, again, much that we could say about his ministry, when, when all was said and done, there had been 825 missionaries that had gone to China through his ministry. There had been about 25,000 converts. And today we find that in, in, in China, at the turn of the century, there were about 100,000 converts in China. Today, there's estimated 150 million uh, converts to Christianity. One of the, as you read through his biography, one of the most significant things that happened was a, a letter sent in 1869. He was 37 years old. 
It's from John McCarthy, a fellow missionary. And he writes, When my agony of soul was at its height, a sentence in a letter from dear McCarthy was used to remove the scales from my eyes, and the Spirit of God revealed me to me the truth of our oneness with Jesus as I had never seen it before. And the text that spoke to him was the text we are going to look at this morning. John 15. And it was so very powerful in his life. In fact, he wrote after, after coming to grips with the truth that we're going to look at in John 15 today. He wrote this. Never again did the unsatisfied days come back. Never again was the needy soul separated from the fullness of Christ. And so this is a very, very profound uh, experience in his life. There are two kinds of rest that the scripture promises us. Two kinds of rest. One is the rest from trying to earn your salvation. You know, from trying to be good enough for God. And most of us at some point, we're, we're in that place and it was such a relief to know that now God's offering to save us by his grace, simply by his grace. And so there's a rest that comes over us. We don't have to work for God's love and grace. We don't have to earn it. It is a gift, as the scripture says, the gift of God is eternal life through Jesus Christ. But there's a second kind of rest. And that's the first one's rest in our salvation. The second one is rest in our walk. And, and that's the kind of thing where you get up in the morning and you don't feel like you have to strive. You don't feel like you have to worry. You don't feel like situations are, are filling you with fear or doubt or confusion or all those kinds of things. This is a rest where you can go through your day and get to the end of day and, and just feel like you have been at rest. This morning, we're going to look at a passage that I think probably has more power to change your life than any passage in the Bible other than, than the gospel. That's a pretty big statement. But there is a truth here that can bring us salvation, brings us that ultimate rest for salvation. But this is, I would say, one of the key passages involved in bringing us to a rest in our day-by-day, moment-by-moment walk. So, John 15, and I would like to read this for you. <clears throat> and if you have your Bibles, you can follow along with me. I am the true vine, my father's the gardener. He cuts off every branch in me that bears no fruit. While every branch that does bear fruit, he prunes so that it will be even more fruitful. You are already clean because of the word I have spoken to you. Remain in me, and I will remain in you. And I'm going I'm to use the word there, abide. Uh, <clears throat> I think that's, a, I think that's a, a, a really good word there. Whenever you see the word remain, you can plug in the word abide. Abide in me, and I will abide in you. No branch can bear fruit by itself. It must abide in the vine. Neither can you bear fruit unless you abide in me. I am the vine. You are the branches. If a man abides in me and I in him, he will bear much fruit. Apart from me, you can do nothing. 
If anyone does not remain in me, he's like a branch that is thrown away and withers. Such branches are picked up and thrown into the fire and burned. If you remain in me and my words remain in you, ask whatever you wish and it will be given you. This is my Father's glory that you bear much fruit, showing yourselves to be my disciples. As the Father has loved me, so have I loved you. Now remain in my love. If you obey my commands, you will remain in my love, just as I have obeyed my Father's commands and remain in his love. And I have told you this, so that my joy may be in you and that your joy may be complete. We're going to stop right there because that's enough for us to handle today. So there's a, there's a picture here of this truth that Jesus gives us, and it's a picture of a, a vine and, and branches. And so I, I, didn't have a, uh, I don't have a, a vine today, but this is kind of a viney uh, plant here. So just use your imagination a little bit. The principle is the same, but there's this metaphor of the vine that, that we're going to look at. So here's the first thing, verse 1. I am the true vine, and my father is the gardener. So here's a picture. Jesus said, I am the vine. And the vine is what carries the sap, it's what carries the nutrients, it's what carries the water, it's what carries everything that all the branches and any fruit that's going to be born, it's all found in the vine, right? I mean, that's the, that's the picture here. Jesus said, that is me. So if, if you want to be growing and bearing fruit and being sustained in your life, then the key here is to be attached, it's to be abiding, it's to remain in me. A branch will not bear fruit unless it's in the vine. And, and the vine is connected to the roots and it has access to all the nutrients, but the branches have to be connected to the vine. So Jesus here in this picture is the vine. Then he says this, my father is the vine dresser. So my father is, is what he does is he goes around the garden and he's the vine dresser. He's the one that oversees you know, the whole growth and progress of this vine or this plant. And so he fertilizes the plant and he pulls weeds around the plant and he'll lift up branches that are hanging down and tie them up. And uh, he also carries one of these. I just happened to bring one with. And uh, what do you think of this? <clears throat> um, this is a different kind of tool, isn't it? And the vine dresser, as it says here, he says the vine dresser also, besides fertilizing and watering, it says one of the things that he does, according to the text, is verse 2, it says, he, he cuts off every branch in me that bears no fruit, while every branch that does bear fruit, he prunes so that it will be even more fruitful. So one of the jobs of the vine dresser is using one of these. And he will use one of these in, in your life and in mine for one purpose or the other. We see here there are two purposes. And so 
we see in verse 2, the first one is this. It says that he cuts off every branch in me that bears no fruit. All right, so that, that's the first thing. He gets rid of dead branches. So, you know, he goes through a plant like this, and, you know, he looks around for, he'll find some branch that's dead, and he'll cut it off. Here's a, here happens to be a dead branch. Branch is going to produce no fruit. It has, you can tell here, there's no, there's no sap in it at all. It has gotten disconnected from the, the main branch of the main vine. And so he will prune these, and there's really no use for these, you know, except to, to get rid of them, and so they will be thrown and cast to the side. We see here that that is one of the roles of the vine dresser. If you look in verse 6, he says, if anyone does not remain in me, he's like a branch that is thrown away and withers, and such branches are picked up and thrown into the fire and burned. Now, is that disturbing to you? A little bit? I mean, is he, it almost sounds like he's saying that you can be in the vine. He says, because he said he cuts off every branch in me Every branch in me, it seems like that's in the vine that doesn't bear fruit. So it's kind of, it's just kind of like, well, you know, the gardener goes around, the father goes around, and he looks and he says, you know what, this one isn't doing good enough, so we're just going to cut it off and get rid of it. I mean, you could, at first glance, be a little bit unnerved to think that is that, is that the kind of tenuous life that I have to live if I'm not bearing enough fruit that the Father's going to discard me? I know there are people that wrestle with that. I don't believe that's what he's saying. One of the examples we see from John is that John recognized there were many people uh, who were apparently following Christ, but really were not. Just, just a couple of those texts. John 6, 66. John 6, verse 66. This is what it says. It says, From this time many of his, and notice what it says, many of his disciples turned back and no longer followed him. So in John, there were those that appeared to believe or appeared to follow, but in, in John's understanding, you could tell who the real followers were because they were the ones that didn't turn away. Another text that John writes is, if you turn back to 1 John, and you'll see this up on the wall, 1 John 2.19. Listen to these words of John because this is part of John's understanding. It says, They went out from us, but they did not really belong to us. For if they had belonged to us, they would have remained with us. But their going out showed that none of them belonged to us. So there were those that were apparently among us, apparently part of this vine, but the fact that they weren't bearing fruit and some of them were literally dead showed that they really were not connected with the vine. And so important here to understand that you know one of the purposes of the vine dresser is if you're disconnected with the vine, if you're not into Christ, then you might as well be removed because you're going to die. 
And so the vine dresser will go, and those branches that are not connected, he will get rid of them and discard them. So here's the second purpose, then, of the vine dresser. He not only removes the dead branches, it says every branch that bears fruit. Now, if, you're bearing, if there's fruit being born in your life, and you're a Christian, he's talking about you. Every branch, not some of them, not a few of them, every branch that bears fruit, he prunes. He cuts back. He removes sections of the plant. And so you have this beautiful plant that's growing, and he comes through and he prunes it. And I do that, and you go, oh, right? Isn't there something in you? I don't know if any of you have pruned, but it seems like I just destroyed a part of that tree. And a vine dresser, if you've ever seen one, if this, was a, if this was a vine plant, you would be horrified to watch what they would do to a vine as they cut it back. Because all this new growth that has come out and produced fruit is going to be cut back as the pruner goes through. If you did not understand the purpose of pruning with a fruit tree, it could be very, very disturbing. And if you don't understand that there is a Father in heaven who is going to prune your life, it can be very, very disturbing. If you don't understand why things are being sometimes taken away, why there are apparent losses in our lives in, in, a, in a variety of areas. I know how many of you have been up to Merrill, up to the apple orchard up there every fall. You go up there and they have this beautiful orchard. And one of the things that strikes me is how small the trees are. You notice that? Many of these trees have been here for years and years and years, and they're not that big. Well, the reason they're not that big is because the people there keep them that way, because they're cut back every year. The goal of an apple tree is not to see how big it can get or how beautiful it can be. It's to see how much fruit it can bear. And so God will often take things in our lives and cut them back because they're really not a part of the fruit bearing that, that God is doing in our lives. Hebrews 12, 11. We, uh, we read these words, and this again is true for everyone who is a believer. It says, no discipline seems pleasant at the time, but painful. Later on, however, it produces a harvest. Now here's the fruit. It produces a harvest of righteousness and peace for those who've been trained by it. So the vine dresser goes through and he's, he's always, you know, cutting back at the right time, not the wrong time, but at the right time he is, he is cutting back those things in our lives that are unnecessary for the bearing of fruit. And whenever you cut back a branch, what it does is it, it goes deeper into the vine to receive the nutrients it needs now to heal and produce new growth. Now that you've cut off the growth, it, it can't rely on that growth. It has to go back into the vine, and out of that will produce even greater fruit. 2 Corinthians 1, verse 8. You'll see it up on the wall. <clears throat> 
Paul writes, he says, We did not want you to be uninformed, brothers, about the hardships we suffered in the province of Asia. We were under great pressure, far beyond our ability to endure, so that we even despaired for our lives. So, the situation there for, for Paul in 2 Corinthians 1.80, he said, we thought it was over. We thought that, we thought that this was it. Things were so bad that we thought it was the end of our life. And listen to what he writes. He says, Indeed, in our hearts we felt the sentence of death, but this happened, that we might not rely on ourselves, but on God who raises the dead. So this happened. How many things in our life happen? so that we will rely on God and not trust in ourselves. Because that's a picture here of, of the pruning process. Verse 3, he writes, You are already clean because of the word I've spoken to you. Now, the word clean and the word prune in the Greek, is those words are almost identical, and they're, they're, they're interchangeable here. So, why does the Father have to prune us if we're already pruned? If you look back just a little bit, John 13, 8. It says, Peter's there, and he said, Peter says, No, you will never wash my feet. Jesus said, Unless I wash you, you will have no part of me. Then Lord Simon said, Not just my feet, but my hands and my head as well. And Jesus answered, A person who's had a bath needs only to wash his feet. His whole body is clean. And listen to what he says. And you are clean, though not every one of you. He's speaking of Judas. And so the exact same phrase, you are already clean. What's he saying? What he's saying is, is that through the gospel, we have been, in a sense, we have been made clean before God. And so in one sense, as a believer, we are clean. We have, been, you know, we have been pruned through the gospel, and we are clean in that sense. And so he's just acknowledging here that in one sense, they are clean. But God, the, you know, the Father, the vine dresser, continues to walk through the garden and continues to prune us, not for our salvation, but for our walk and our, for our growth and for our eternal reward which is what fruit is also all about. So here is the command in verses 4 and 5, chapter 15. He says, Abide in me, and I will abide in you. No branch can bear fruit by itself. It must remain in the vine. Neither can you bear fruit unless you remain in me. I am the vine. You are the branches. If a man remains or abides in me, and I in him, he will bear much fruit. Apart from me, you can do nothing. So, apart from abiding in Christ, we can do nothing. We can do nothing. So what we see here is a radical call, because we're going we're to be thinking about what does it mean to abide. One of the things it means to abide is a radical call to, to dependence upon Christ, upon this vine didn't say we could do very little. It said we can do nothing. It's a, a full surrender to him. 
So at this point, you know, what does this abiding, what does that look like? It, to me, it's kind of a fuzzy word. I'm preaching this. I'm still trying to comprehend and experience and understand what this means to abide in Christ. And so over these next weeks, we're going to keep talking about this and looking at what that means. But there's a couple of hints here. Verse 7. And this is, I'm going to give you just some things. I'm not going to spend a lot of time on this morning, uh, but I want you to jot these down, and I'm going to invite you to think and pray on these things over the next few weeks. Verse 7, he says, If you remain in me and my words remain in you, ask whatever you wish, it will be given to you. So here we see this thing about words. So as the words of Christ become your thoughts and remain in you and become part of you, we find that that's got to be, seems to be one of the keys here to abiding is that his word remains in us. So when his word remains in us, it changes how we pray. And, and he talks here about that we ask whatever we will and God will give it. You know, before we were trying to get out of pruning, Right? God, please don't bring hard things. In the, don't bring discomfort into my life. Don't bring challenges. Don't bring problems. When they come, we try and pray them away. Now, we have a different response. When God brings challenges, we embrace them, and we say, okay, God, what, how are you teaching me to be sufficient upon you, and, and what is the fruit that you're working in my life through what you've allowed to happen? That is an extremely different way to pray. It's as his word to us now becomes our word. Verse 8, he says, This is to my Father's glory that you bear much fruit, showing yourselves to be my disciples. So we see here that God's desire for your life is to bring glory to him through your life and through the things that, that he brings you through. Abiding comes through saturating yourself in his word and then praying for that fruit in, in your life and realizing that your life is really here for the glory of God. And, you know, that's an interesting question to ask yourself. Is that, when I think of my life and the purpose of my life, is my life like, God, whatever my life can be for your glory, that's why I'm here. So, God's word is, is calling us to those kinds of thoughts. Verse 9, as the Father has loved me, so I have loved you. Now remain in my love. And so we see here that we have to saturate ourselves, not only in the word, but saturate ourselves in God's love. And so abiding in Christ means to allow us, it means opening your hands to God and saying, God, will you just pour your love into me? Will you love me beyond what I have ever known before it's actually living resting soaking in Christ's love and Jesus said you know God has this amazing love for me as his son I, I want you to experience that same love that the father has for me I want you to experience my love for you in that way and so abiding is all about opening your life up to, on a moment-by-moment -moment basis, the love of God. Verse 10, 
he says, if you obey my commands, you'll remain in my love, just as I've obeyed my Father's command and remained in his love. And he says, my command is this, love each other. And so as we saturate ourselves in living to that end, so from the time you get up in the morning till the time you go to bed at night, we are to open ourselves up to the love of God and we are to be obedient to him and, and that obedience is to love the people around us with the same kind of love that we're receiving from him. And then lastly in verse 11, I have told you this so that my joy may be in you and that your joy may be complete. So God wants you to abide because he wants you to live every day in joy. And notice it's not, it's, it's not a joy that outside of himself that he necessarily gives you. He says, I want my joy to be your joy. I want you to experience the same joy I experience. I want you to experience the same love I experience. I, think you, I want you to walk in obedience to the Father as, as I walk in obedience to the Father. So let me summarize. I, I do not fully understand what it means to abide in Christ. I spent the summer in my sabbatical reading through a number of books, uh, Andrew Murray, Abiding in Christ, uh, amazing, amazing book by a man who has really experienced this, I believe, in a, in a great way. But here's the thing. I, I think this is huge. I, I think this could transform many lives in this room if, if you could grasp this truth and live in this abiding relationship. This is this is not an invitation to just receive things that you know, God sends in the mail that you need. This is to actually live in his love and his joy. It's actually to experience the same love and the same joy that Jesus experiences in his relationship with the Father. In such a way that his word and his love and his joy become ours. And so here's, here's my invitation to you. I want you to, between now and December 7th, I'm going to ask you to start praying that God would teach you what does it mean to abide in Christ? What does that mean? How can I experience that on a day-to-day -day basis? And we're going to look together at that, and, and we're going to talk together about that. And on December 7th, we're going to come together, and we're going to do something I haven't done here in 16 years but we're going to have an open mic for the whole service. And <clears throat> I am going to be praying, and I invite you to pray, that there are going to be many people here whom God has shown this truth and have experienced a profound change in how you live out your day because if you grasp this truth, you are living in the very presence of Christ moment by moment, and you know what? If Jesus is here, there's no shortage of power. There's, there's no shortage of love. There's no shortage of joy. There's no situation that's overwhelming. If you're in the storm, guess what? Jesus is in the storm. He's on the boat. He is right there moment by moment. If you can experience his living presence in every circumstance of your life, it will transform. It will transform 
how you live. And, and that is the end to which I want to pray. It was 1893, Daniel Whittle had, was at the World's Fair in Chicago, and a, a lay pastor came up to him and said, you know, there's an old hymn that has always bothered me. I, he said, the name of the hymn is, I need thee every hour. Because he said, I need him every minute, every moment. And it inspired, Dan, it inspired Daniel Whittle, and he went up to his room, and he wrote an old hymn, and uh, the old hymn was entitled, Moment by Moment. Some of you maybe know that. This is the words, he says, Never a trial that he is not here, never a burden that he does not bear, never a sorrow that he does not share. Moment by moment, I'm under his care. Moment by moment, I'm kept in his love. Moment by moment, I've life from above, looking to Jesus till glory to shine. Moment by moment, O Lord, I am thine. I'm going to invite you to stand as we close this morning. Father, this morning, I, I want to pray that you would teach us and open our eyes to the truth of John 15. What does it mean for us to abide in the vine? Father, we, I just pray that you would teach us that over these next few weeks. Father, I, I believe you have to reveal that to us and, and we have to begin to seek you for that and we have to open up our lives and hearts to want that. But Father, over the course, and I, I believe that, Lord, you're going to, for those here that are open and want this, you're going to begin to, as they begin to focus and pray and, and seek to understand and seek to live this way, Father, that you're going to show us what it means to live in your love and in your joy and to live a life of obedience as, as you obeyed your Father and what it means for your words to dwell in our mind and not all of the other thoughts that come our way. So, Father, we pray that you would teach us and uh, we just commit ourselves to you. Just do a work in us over these next weeks and, Father, that, that our lives might be transformed and ultimately that your name would be glorified. We pray these things in, in Jesus' name. Amen. Thank you. You are dismissed. <coughs>